And so there's a there's a moment of skin, right? I was cognizant of my skin, mm-hmm. right? The difference of my skin, yeah. right? In that moment, you know, darkness of my skin, the whiteness of the skin of the attackers, the three mm-hmm. attackers. It was really a moment of contrast. Right. Can you talk about skin, how you felt in your skin? And, yeah. You know, when, when's the first time you realize that difference? The Inclusion Welcome to the Inclusion Lab with Kalyan Balavin. I sat down with Sanjeev De Silva, the new head of school of the Northern Light School in Oakland, California, who also is the socially conscious hip-hop and reggae educator Ross Ceylon for a multi-part episode on all things Inclusion Lab. Let the experiment begin. Episode 1. Hey man. So Sanjeev De Silva in front of me right now. Let me tell you who he is. Uh, we have an educational leader, an activist, a raptivist, an artist, somebody who has always been about uh, inclusion his whole life, but now is a leader in that world, a leader in educational spaces. Uh, Sanjay De Silva also goes by another name, Ross Ceylon, a person who has been an artist and activist throughout the world, in the hip hop world, but also in the streets. Uh, and has brought all of that into the classroom and into educational spaces. So, you know, there's a lot there. We're going to unpack that story uh, and unpack our story together. I'd like to welcome Sanjeev De Silva to the Inclusion Lab. Hey, hey, greetings, greetings. Really honored to be here. I'm happy to chop it up with you, my brother. All right, we're going to go right into it, man. We're both in the spaces around the idea of inclusion. This is the Inclusion Lab. Oftentimes, we realize inclusion through exclusion. Let's go back to childhood. Take us back to that moment where you first felt excluded. Oof, you know, take it all the way back, man, to the early 80s. Um, I think one of the key things when it comes to inclusion or exclusion is the idea of identity, right? Mm. And who gets to identify um, who we are, what makes us understand who we are as people, in our own eyes, but also in the eyes of others. Yes, yes. So the earliest memory I can recall of having to grapple with having some kind of quote-unquote other identity yeah. would be the first physical fight I ever got into. Mm. And, um, man, I'll, I'll never forget this. I was probably about five or six years old um, at the park in, in my neighborhood, um, you know, a couple blocks away from the house. Mm. But by myself out there kind of with some of the bigger kids or whatever in the park trying to just do my thing as a little guy and a big kind of uh older kid calls me the n-word and at the time i had never even really heard that word being used in such a way and didn't wasn't really clear on the meaning but i was definitely clear on the intent you got it and the intent Uh was to dehumanize yes yes, and i felt that And my immediate response, you know, fight or flight, Mm. it was fight, Mm -hmm. you know. And so, yeah, so I definitely, it was a physical confrontation. I think I I got the best of the bully in that situation in some ways. Um, But I I remember walking away just wondering, you know, what what was it that that made him 
call me that? Mm. And uh, why did it feel so hard? Like, why did it hurt so bad, you know? Yeah, you felt the sentiment behind the word. Part of it was the context, the anger or vitriol, mm-hmm. um, the demeanor of the bully. Yes. Um, but that was your introduction. Yeah, early on, Ooh, man. Like okay. I said, five, six years old, so yeah, see. for okay. sure. Yeah, okay. early memory. What What about for you? When When Ooh. When do you think your your first idea so, of inclusion or exclusion Ooh. was? Okay, okay, okay. So I, I, I for me, probably around the same age. Mm. So I am, let's say, also five years old. I know because I was ki- it was a kindergarten. So you know, I grew up in Richmond, California. But what a lot of people don't realize is there's a little piece in time for me where my family moves to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Year and a half. We are living in Connecticut for a year and a half. A year and a half was when I was in uh, kindergarten and entering first grade. And we come back to California and everything that most people know about me starts there. But when we're in Naugatuck, Connecticut, we're living in these townhomes. What happened is I would um, go to kindergarten. In the morning, my mom uh, would walk me down to the bus stop. And then I'd come back. A bus would drop me off and I'd walk back home. Right. One morning, she's walking me to the bus stop, and you know, it's my mom, West Indian woman, immigrant. You know, she's uh, you know, wearing, you know, long, long flowing dress, and I hear her fighting with somebody behind me. I'm walking, and it's just like this giant boulder or rock uh, in the courtyard. So I'm walking around that, and I hear her. I turn around. And this white dude who's attacking her. Mm. And then two other white dudes attacking. I don't know. Wow. I mean, this is an assault that I'm witnessing yeah. as a young boy. Man, so I'm running. Traumatic. Yes, I'm running up on them and they're pushing me away. And she's yelling and screaming. And finally somebody comes out from one of the apartments and um and pull, you know, and pulls one of the dudes off and and, you know, whether this is going to be a sexual assault or what kind of assault, yeah. I don't, it was an assault. What's weird is that was my first exposure of like, we're different. We don't belong here. Right. I'm yeah. different. And my mom, being who she is, I still had to go to school that day. It wasn't like, you know, you're not, you know this is not a day you're not right, going to school. Right, we're still right. going to school. Yeah. Uh, and we never talked about it. Mom and I never talked Man. about it. But that... That was that moment is emblazed into me. It was physicality, and I also felt powerless. True, right? Right. You know, I didn't. I'm not the one that pulled them off. Yeah, right. Yeah. I felt powerless, and so that framed a lot of my worldview. Mm. Right. Man, that's man, pretty traumatic man. early experience, man. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And so there's a there's a moment of skin, right? I was cognizant of my skin, mm-hmm. right? The difference of my skin, yeah. right? In that moment, you know, darkness of my skin. The whiteness of the skin of the attackers, the three attackers, it was really a moment of contrast. Right? Can you talk about skin? How you felt in your skin? And, yeah. You know, when when's the first time you realized that difference? Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, uh, melanated people of the earth, man. We are the global majority, mm-hmm. but in oftentimes in you know institutional white supremacist society, mm-hmm. we don't feel that, right? We've mm-hmm. been labeled as minorities. Mm-hmm. And so so that is a fascinating question of skin. And for me, um, growing up again in Southern California, um, in Orange County, you know, my family had moved from from South Central LA to mm-hmm. Orange County. Yeah. And so they went from an area was mostly black and brown folks, yeah. kind of looked more like 
you know, like my family to mostly white folks where we were definitely different. Yes. Right. And okay. so by the time I'm in elementary school, I'm, you know, in the Catholic school, uh, mostly white, you know, one of the few little brown boys in my mm-hmm. school or in my class rather. And um, I recall, you know, about third, third, fourth grade, around the time when you start having an interest in in uh, the, the opposite gender, you know, uh, for mm-hmm. me, you know, having um, a little crush on, on a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can remember her name. I won't say her name for the, you know, to protect uh, <laughs> the anonymity here. But um, I, I do recall, you know, really attractive, uh, kind of brown hair, a little bit taller than me, but like, you know, um, athletic girl that I had a little crush on, you know, my, my little self. I was a little skinny brown dude, but uh, I had a lot of personality, but I had a big crush on this girl. And, you know, I noticed that we, when we talked, there was mm-hmm. some energy there, you know, a little bit of flirtation. So it, it was good. It was good. To me, I thought, hey, this could be my first girlfriend, perhaps. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, you know, back then it's like, will you go out with me? That was like the whole question. And mm-hmm. then once you ask them that, then you, you're going out, you know, mm-hmm. and your boyfriend, girlfriend, that type of thing. Right. You know, um, early childhood stuff. And so. I remember asking her, you know, finally getting the nerves up to, to ask her, mm. hey, can we go out? Mm. Can we be, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend? Mm. And uh, to my surprise, she said yes. Oh. Although there was a caveat. Okay. She said the one thing is you have to change your skin color. Ooh. And in my mind, I thought that that was perhaps an option. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that doesn't seem like something that's too crazy right okay, okay. I, I mean i didn't know you know again an eight-year-old mind yeah and i had a uh and so i'm telling this story to one of my little buddies uh-huh. who was also white and he tells me oh yeah man you know um i was looking in the back of this comic book and there's this uh there's a uh, there's pills that you can order mm. and they could change your skin color and turn you turn you white mm. and so I, I was excited about this i was like oh cool now the girl will go out with me, right? Ooh, pills. Gotcha. And so, yeah. yeah so okay. Some skin lightening, man. Yeah. And so, basically. You ordering? I was waiting for him to give me the hookup. Oh, okay, so, I got you. So, a couple of days go by. He's like, oh, no, you know, you got to wait. Must have been DC comic. <laughs> Probably, man. <laughs> I used to call those dumb comics back yes, then. Yes. You know what I mean? Okay. Make mine Marvel. Yes. We'll get into that later. Yes. But, um, you know, so I eventually was asking him, you know, for days on end, like, hey, man, I, I need the pills. What's uh-huh. up? And eventually, I guess he felt bad or something. He ended up telling me, hey, sorry, man. I, I was just joking. There, there's, oh, there's no pills. And no pills? No pills, man. Oh, man. And so, um, you know, for me, that that was the first time I realized, like, wow, this idea of of being dark-skinned um, can be seen as, as different, othered, mm. and um, not attractive in the eyes of what the... I guess the white standard of beauty is right. That's interesting. Yeah, man, and and, and it's funny. I remember seeing the girl later on in high school mm-hmm. and recalling the story to her. Mm-hmm. She completely denied it. She was like, "Oh no, I wouldn't have ever done that." Uh-huh. And I was trying to tell her, like, "No, it definitely happened." Yes, you know. So yeah. Wow, you got me thinking about the pill. Like, you know, you know, would it, would I take the pill, right? And uh, I definitely would have taken it as a as an elementary age kid because. All the heroes, and I even remember this because uh, even as I try to emulate them, a lot of my heroes in those days, I mean, there's three three figures that stand up to me. It was Christopher Reeves, Superman. Superman I yeah. wanted to be that. I wanted to be- Did you ever put the little S, try to put the S in your hair, like the little S? Oh, man. I, oh, oh, I had the, I had the, you know, the curl drip, yeah, man. You right. know what I mean? In the front of my head. 
Uh, I uh, back when I had hair. Right. Um, <laughs> then I had um, Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. right? right? You know, I want to be Luke. And uh, I'm embarrassed Blue-eyed, about blonde hair. Oh yes, I'm embarrassed about the last one, uh, but I'm gonna share with you. Uh, Lone Ranger. It was Lone Ranger. Ooh. So those, those are my three. Those right. are three that I really. Oh, and they all not, have not Tonto. Not Tonto. Lone, Lone Ranger. Lone, Lone Ranger. Right. Man, the right. silver bullets and everything. Man, right. Those are the three, and uh, they all. You know, there's some similarities between them, but all at the end of the day, these these white figures yeah. were the ones I. You know, and I wanted to be them, and um, wow, you know, I, you know, imagine a pill. Well, we would have taken a pill, Man. you know, to look like them. Yeah, you know, it's like cosplay to the next level, you know. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I'm kind of embarrassed by it right now. Now, I don't be embarrassed, man. Honestly, I, you you telling that story reminds me of, of another story, too. And, you know, bless my parents' hearts, man. Mm-hmm. Im- immigrants from the island of Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Trying to navigate raising kids in mm-hmm. this American society in the 1980s. Yeah. We're into what we're into, right? Pop culture, whatever we see on TV or in the movies, this is the things that we're attracted to naturally. So one of my favorite television shows back then was Dukes of Hazard. Oh. You recall the old school Dukes of Hazard? I do recall. Okay. And yes, so yes. in Dukes of Hazard, they had a certain vehicle, right? I do remember I this. I believe vehicle. it was called the General Lee. Oh, was that's the name of the car, right? Oh, yeah. And that, that, that car wasn't canceled back then. That <laughs> definitely was not canceled. Oh, wow. In fact, it was promoted. And uh, I remember, you know, the big thing back then was a lunchbox and the thermos. Oh, don't you know? say it. Don't say it. Oh, yeah. So I remember going to school, not knowing any better, but mm-hmm. my my thermos and my lunchbox was emblazoned with a huge Confederate flag on it wow. for the Dukes of Hazard. Wow. And that was like my prized possession. And I didn't know any better. It wasn't until years later I reflected back like, wow. Wait a minute. I was really wow. carrying that to school, a Confederate wow, flag. Man. On my lunchbox, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, man, this this is part of the... Um, the some, journey. Yeah, the journey and yeah. the contradictions we deal with, you know, growing up uh, in this society, man. So when, when, do our, when did our heroes change mm. to be more representative of who we were? I mean, there's a different world that we live in as educators now for the students. I think there's a lot more representation. It's beautiful, yeah, right. right? Even the uh, word inclusion, like that was never oh, there. No. Representation, these words were not, oh, not at all. used at all. Not at all. I remember, uh, remember the show, uh, this is interesting. Remember that show, Different Strokes? Of course. Right? Yeah. So in that what show. What you talking about? Different, what you talking about, Willis? Uh, <laughs> right. But in that show, uh, Muhammad Ali was, was on that show. As a guest mm. on one episode, wow! And then, and then I became enamored with Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. and it was a shift for me from from I was like, oh, Muhammad Ali, and it, I didn't even know anything about you know I'm not Muslim back then, right, 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 right. all that stuff. But it was something about his charisma mm. that drew me in. Interestingly, and I started to shift towards I think figures that were more uh, resonant yeah. with who I was in the world. Nice, right? Yeah. Uh, who's that? Who's that person for you? Man, um, it's funny you mentioned like just the the, the culture back then, right? Because mm. for me, I think part of that started with comic books, to mm. be honest. Okay. And the, the main comic book that I resonated with the most was the X-Men. And oh, if you recall, the X-Men were mutants. Oh, you were mutants. Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So we could relate to that. We I could see. relate being other by society, being uh-huh. seen as different and weird and strange. And like to see those people... You know, huh. that were superhuman. Yes, yes. You know, that had this these this X gene that made them powerful. So as you grew up, were you more Magneto and now you're more Professor X? Maybe, or, you maybe, know? maybe. 
you know, but those stories, actually, uh-huh. that was some of my first motivations to actually even read. I remember my mom being like, you know, well, as long as he's reading something, you know, it's yeah. all good. So I would say <laughs> the early stuff, you know, the early X-Men comic books was was definitely big. But when when the heroes really started to look more like me, it was also part of my early introduction to hip hop culture. Now, hold on. Back up, back up. Who's your favorite X-Men back in the day? Man, it's I know it's crazy to say, but I mean, it's not crazy to say, but it was Wolverine. You know? Okay, so it's interesting. The reason I ask is because I was, you know, I was going to speculate that right. it might have been Wolverine. Yeah. Wolverine's an interesting figure because he heals, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, he physical, factor. physical, mental trauma. He yeah. heals the healing factor, and he and he continues, right? Yes, you yes. know, and he, and he you know continues to struggle, and then right. he heals. And again. he was short. He was a small guy. Small yeah. guy. So interesting. Yeah. So you resonate with Wolverine. I think. Uh, so did you ever get a chance to meet any of uh, the writers or any of the folks? Right, because you know, I think if you did, uh, they would have probably perceived it as a cliche. Yeah, well, that's exactly what happened. One of my most clear memories of, I think maybe the only comic, famous comic book writer I met was, uh, you know, the the stellar writer Chris Claremont, who gave Ooh. us some of the most classic X Men storylines. Right, oh right, great, you know. And so he was. Uh, he was doing a comic book signing, um, you know, locally where we were at, mm-hmm. and me and my friends were going to, to going to get our comic signed. This is around the time when uh, X Men number one was coming out, that new relaunch, I believe, ninety one, ninety two, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, kind of relaunch of the X Men. And uh, so we were getting our comic signed, and, and my buddy in front of me told him, you know, I really love your work with with Cyclops, Scott Summers. And you saw, you saw his face light up, right? Yeah. Chris Kramer, oh, thank you so much. Yo, Nobody man. likes Cyclops. Right. So he was he was really happy to hear that, right? And, you know, keep in mind, this is before even the X-Men cartoons. It's long before the X-Men movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Wolverine, you know, I, I basically said the same thing. I told Chris Claremont, hey, I really love your work with Wolverine. And he gave me this look of kind of like disgust and dis- dismissal. Just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Let me just sign that for you. And I remember being like totally hurt because... You know, in my mind, I'm like, okay, mm. maybe he thinks I'm just saying that because that's the most popular character or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But I really resonated with the short little hairy dude talking about Bub, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. It reminds me of moments. I've had I've had moments on both sides of the spectrum. I have my moments where I've been disappointed with the writer. Mm-hmm. The writer who's created the character I resonated with, I'm like, oh. And then, and I've also had the moment where it's like, uh, I've taken. Uh, I'm like, wow. I'm. I'm. I've met my kindred spirit, my brother from another mother type. Right. Moment, right. True, so true, true. I've had those two. One was uh, the one that comes to my mind is an artist who was work right in this room right now. We're in the room. I got his work up on my wall. Right. Yeah. Neil Adams. Okay. Neil Adams' work is iconic. He drew for both DC and Marvel. Uh, phenomenal. All the yeah. you know artwork that you recognize is iconic. Uh, 70s, 80s, you know, uh, 90s uh, artists that just, he could draw. Mm-hmm. He could make people pop. Uh, he was one of the most inclusive, I thought, uh, uh, artists. Right. With, uh, the, with the artwork. Artwork, yeah, yeah. man. It's been, you know, the Green Lantern run, mm-hmm. that, that Green Lantern, Green Arrow run, where you have the first time you got black characters. And DC, I you know, make fun of DC a little bit because it was... Milk toast mostly, right, right? right? You know, you didn't see representation yeah. for a long time. Neil Adams was drawing folks, right? Mm, you got oh, you know, drug addicts and people in the in the in the hood for the first time, and you're like, oh man, like you're seeing 
society differently, right? right? right. And you know, Adam's which is more of a Marvel thing, yeah, more of a Marvel thing. So, so I get to meet him. I'm excited to meet him. I'm actually meeting him uh, as I'm going to this other conference, and uh, he sees my lanyard. It's about you know some uh, lanyard that I'm for the other conference, more uh, about inclusion and other things. And he starts going on a tirade on me. I see him at this uh, breakfast buffet type thing. And I'm like, Neil Adams, what's going on? And he's like, I'll see you later at the con. I'm I'm not at the Comic Con. I'm at this other convention. He sees my lanyard and he starts going off about, uh, you know, uh, inclusion and this and that and other. And I'm like, wait a minute. I caught him at a bad moment or whatnot. But he really like, I was like, oh, man, this guy. Wow. In a moment. And then... uh, the mother story is the other side of the spectrum where you have a, a, a writer who, who wrote Moon Knight, he wrote uh, um, Punisher and Wolverine, he's written other things. The Orphan X series is Greg Hurwitz. And, and Greg and I connected uh, just as, as you know, kindred beings, right? We start talking about Rumi and other things. Hmm. And I find out he's written characters that I love. Wow. And I'm like, it was a different experience. So yeah. We're like, wow, we're yeah. really into the similar things. So, and I find a, an inclusion, a person who is inclusive in his life. Right, right. Right. And has inclusive perspective. And it's funny to think about how, you know, some people create art, mm-hmm. right? That you think that their lifestyle will reflect the art that they've created. Yes, yes, yes. But that's not always the case. Not always the case. But there's something interesting you said about Wolverine. You said he's a short, hairy dude, right? But there's something about being the underdog, being yeah. the short person, being the person that rises up from trauma each time. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other small statured figures that you might resonate with? Certainly, certainly. You know? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I was kind of going there as well when we were talking about our early heroes. Okay. Um, because, you know, one of my favorite rap groups that came out when I was young uh-huh. was uh, N.W.A., okay. right? Okay. And, you know, before N.W.A.'s first album came out, uh-huh. I had Easy es first album, oh, right? Because okay. Easy does it. Okay. And so Easy e you know, he may not have been talking about the most positive stuff, but just to see him, you know, again, it's kind of small stature dude, uh, leading this group, really confident, mm-hmm. right? That was kind of a template for me to like, oh, okay, you can actually, you know, continue to uh to to be to be strong even if if you're not the biggest dude out there you know oh, that's interesting so yeah I, I, you know long live uh, Easy E man I see I see interesting patterns to the stories uh, that you've told so far and I see how you framed Easy E as well it's interesting um, you're an artist you're a rapper do you ever intersect uh, as a hip hop artist and as an MC with that world. Did you ever get a connection to Easy? I know you passed away yeah, yeah. Uh, far too young, but any intersections? True, there? yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, we try to consider ourselves as uh, at least novicely um, hip hop practitioners of all four elements, right? So, at mm-hmm. certain points, we tried break dancing, tried our hands in graffiti art mm-hmm, a little bit. Mm-hmm. By the time I get to junior high, I actually have a a DJ crew, mm. right? We called ourselves Thundercuts after the Thundercats, but I see, Thundercuts, I see, I see, right? That's a good name. Yeah, it was fun. So, you know, we throw our little house parties uh-huh. and, uh, you know, uh, open mic events and different stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, I was the only one that didn't have my own turntables and I only had one crate of records, right? And so eventually that's what led me to being the MC of the group is because I, I didn't have as much to contribute on, on the turntables, but I, I did on the mic. Mm-hmm. But the main brother that was giving us our records 
was a gentleman by the name of DJ Speed. Mm. And DJ Speed, if you go back and look, was the DJ for JJ Fad. Yeah. And it was also a Ruthless Ruthless Records, mm. you know, founded by Eazy E. Was up. um, you know, his his artist. And so DJ Speed would tell us all these stories about growing up and how Eazy E saved his life. And then this ended up being the same gentleman that was giving us um, you know, access to records. Uh, physical 12 inch records that we would have had no way to get otherwise so Mm. so yeah it is interesting connection yeah interesting for sure interesting uh for me it was run dmc well what yeah run dmc yeah Uh, in terms of in terms of artistry and everything Mm -hmm. and i eventually uh had my connection where i got to connect with uh daryl mcdaniels right Right, dmc DMC. and uh and it was at because he writes comic books as well right it was actually at a comic con okay i got to connect with him and uh, talked to him, and it was an interesting moment where, like, uh, he was talking about his struggles, at, you know, in terms of mental health, and, mm. and it got real personal real quick, wow. and something I didn't expect. You know, wow. I just wanted to say what's up to somebody I admired as yeah. an MC growing up as a as a young young kid, just like loved the music. Yeah, you know, but he music. opened up to you like he that, opened huh? up to him. It was, it was wow. real strange. I caught him a moment, phenomenal, and it was powerful. And uh, I took a lot from it. And he told me his first love was storytelling and comic books. Hmm. And uh, so it was interesting. We, we resonated there too yeah. in terms of the stories, the myths that we told each other and, and resonated with us. True, Because um, I could live in those stories differently. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Right? For me, the archetype that I gravitated towards was the Spider-Man archetype mm-hmm. in the comic books. Right? The nerdy kid, mm-hmm. right? Right. That, uh, you know, had some special power, special ability, but nobody really realized. Yeah. Right? And so for me... That was that archetype. And so it was an interesting story that uh, definitely I found strength in or some power in. Mm-hmm. And thought of like, you know, that was, is, it, is that my story? Right. 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 So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so thinking about like music, comic books, mm-hmm. you touched on Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. as an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we talk about it a lot like yeah. in our personal lives, you know, whether it's our, our rivalry. <laughs> With football teams, the basketball teams, yes, yes, yes. Well, we share the basketball team. Yeah, but, we share uh, the basketball team. What are some early uh, athletes that uh, beyond Muhammad Ali that inspired you and in, uh, yeah, just building on that? Oh, interesting. Um, beyond Muhammad Ali, for me, uh, it's, it's it's weird. I mean, I'm a Golden State Warriors fan, but the story, yes, Dub Nation. But what's interesting was in basketball. The person I was like just enamored with was Isaiah Thomas. Zeke. Okay. Right. Uh, and Detroit Pistons, watching them in the playoffs. The bad boys. With <laughs> uh, the Lakers. Right. And uh, fourth quarter, Isaiah. Yeah. And just, just I'm like, wow. Another little dude, right? Right. Another Man. little guy. And I'm watching it. And a little dude is doing, you know, it's like, how's he doing this? Yeah. Uh, and it was shortly thereafter. I don't know if it was that summer or the following summer. My mom, my mom maybe watched this um, this this movie that was I don't know, like Disney Channel type movie, right? It was like these yeah. movies, Hallmark movie type, right, right. You know? after school special, after school special movies, right? Yeah. About Isaiah Thomas. Okay. It was about it's called the Mary Thomas story. It was actually about his mom. Wow. And how she was the rock that made him um, achieve in life, in education, in sports, and everything. Uh, coming out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And she made me watch it and she she analyzed that film. She's like, look, 
you know, this is what you need to do. You need to, you need to work hard. You yeah. need to sacrifice. You need to put in time. And like, and Isaiah's taking the bus and he's going through the train, the train, the bus to get to this, this, this prep school, and right, they're doing right. poetry. And he's like, What is, you know, he doesn't re- you know, he's from the hood, yeah. and he's trying to navigate in code switch and learn the lingo and and and, and be successful. And you know, there's no out to high school. Right. You know, you can't, you know, dropping out of high school, that's a wrap. Right, mm-hmm. so yeah. there's no the out, and if you, yeah, you wants to get to the next level, and that on those days, as an athlete, you want to get the next level, you go to NCAA, right? Mm-hmm. And then from there, professional sports, and and it's like lightning has to strike for you to even be able to do that. Right. One in a million. Oh right. yeah, and so yeah. and so I'm watching this story, and my mom's whole message is not about Isaiah Thomas, the basketball player. It's about Isaiah Thomas, uh, the student. Look mm-hmm. what he look what he did. Look wow. how, look at that. You know the delta he achieved, and and she's just pushing this message into me. And so it became, he became a real important figure for me. Nice. Um, and I got to meet him. Oh, you know, wow. it, was, it, was, it, was, it was wild. So Did you share that story of uh, what, what that, that movie had on you with it? No, no. It was, I, was so, wow. I was so starstruck. And I was listening to him. I was listening to him, to, him talk yeah. about the NBA. So I never talked to him about that story. I, I'd love to have that follow-up conversation, mm-hmm. you know, now. But the story that I, you know, uh, and he was talking about education, the role education is, and pl- education plays, and, and the commodification of athlete, and so on mm. and so forth. So it was a good, rich conversation that we ended up having. Um, but I never had this other conversation. I was almost embarrassed to bring it all this up, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Man. Yeah. yeah for, you? For me, um, it goes, you know, again, kind of a common theme here, the small statures, right? Yeah. When it comes to the small statured player in the history of the NBA, who, oh. we're talking about Tyrone Muggsy, Muggsy Bogues. Bogues, man. That's right. That's right. So as a kid, Woo. just seeing him on the court, man, it was so motivating. Five foot three, you know, his his book, his bio, his first biography is called In the Land of Giants. Ooh. And that really describes what it Dunbar was like. High school? Yep. Yep. Wow. Baltimore, B-more. And wow. um, I remember a couple stories with Muggs, man. Um, you know, back again in the eighties, mm-hmm. right. Or maybe early nineties, but really, uh, late eighties, mm-hmm. we had, um, computer class it was like one of our first, you know, where you just do like basic typing, you oh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, you maybe play that game, Oregon trail or something. Right? That's, right. that's right. And so they, they made, uh, one of the assignments was to write a letter to, to your hero, Yeah. you know? So I ended up typing the letter out and, and writing it to Muggsy yeah. and ended up getting back, um, you know, a couple cards signed by him. Stop it. And to me back then that was like, Oh my gosh, that's, it. that's everything. Right. And so my mom wow. knew, knew how much I loved Muggsy Bogues and how mm-hmm. much he was a hero to me. Yeah. Um, all I, you know, so she ended up getting me two years in a row tickets to to the Inglewood Forum mm. to go watch the Lakers. But you know, I, I was I, I liked the Lakers, but I wasn't a you know a fanatic. But I was a huge Muggsy fan, and so two years in a row we got to watch the Charlotte Hornets mm. play the L.A. Lakers. Wow. We sat way up at the top near the band, mm. and you know, we kind of worked our way down uh, to the to the better seats. You know, at the end of the game yeah, or whatever, yeah. and just to, so just so I could see Muggs. You know, did you get uh, to meet him? I didn't get to meet him back then. Oh, um, but what's really interesting? Fast forward 25, 30 years later. Yeah. Um, actually, this is the beginning of the pandemic in uh, uh-huh. in twenty twenty. Um, I ended up doing an Instagram live interview with Muggsy. Stop it. Yeah, a little one on one session, man. You can check it out on my on my Instagram page, and it was beautiful, man, to be able to share these exact stories with him. 
and, um, you know, have him, you know, kind of give him his flowers and thank him for this early inspiration. Wow. And he, he thanked me for, for sharing those stories and oh, how wow. that keeps him going. And he has this message of always believe. Yeah. always believe. And that's something that, that sticks with me to this day. And, you know, even back then, you know, I played high school basketball a little bit and that was about it. But because of Muggsy Bogues, I was never afraid to play on the the courts with the big dudes and really mm. get in the mix, you know? And so that's something that, that, that stuck with me to this day, for sure. Interesting. So shout out to Muggs, man. Well, we've been sharing stories and the stories are interesting because all of our students share their stories. Mm -hmm. And there's something about these stories that are resonant with and capture our pedagogies, uh, the way in which we set up this classroom or the school or the opportunities, or the way we which, in, which, in which we connect with kids. Yeah. Um, are there moments with young people that you feel like trigger or vice versa, or stories that you carry in which you use to motivate yourself with young people uh, or moments that mm. you remember that you feel like capture what I'm trying to get yeah, at, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we take for granted the fact that um, the students are comfortable enough to share parts of their life experience with us. Mm. I think oftentimes the classroom is set up in a way that, that limits that. Mm. In, in terms of traditional classrooms, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We flip the classroom and allow the students to to teach. That's right. And share their narratives. Um, I think some of them find that very refreshing because they don't always get that same experience. Not at all. Um, and in many ways, what we're trying to do as educators is give them what we never had, mm. right? Back growing up, you know, I can remember feeling like I wasn't, inadequate, even as a student, right? Mm -hmm. I can recall vividly, um, you know, being in class and the teacher is asking a question and I have my hand raised, mm. right? No one else has a hand raised. She's like, does anybody have the answer? I have my hand raised. She looks around the classroom and says, oh, okay. Yeah. No, nobody knows the answer. Yeah. We're moving on. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and feeling kind of invisible mm -hmm. in that moment, you know? Um, and so for me, it's always a, it's a, it's a moment of consciousness of making sure that I don't do that to another student. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd flip on being very visible in relationship to uh, getting in trouble. Facts. I'm like, what? Yes. Uh, you know, five other people did that right. same First thing. First to be blamed for, for when things go wrong. Yeah. Right? yeah. I'm a constantly in, to a point where I was, there's some teachers that I've had, uh, I'm a public school guy yeah. all the way through okay. it. I I, you know, I got lucky sometimes and I was very unlucky mm. uh, sometimes. And teachers that just, uh, you know, saw only only negative in me. Right. Because um, they might have been looking at you through a certain lens, Absolutely. Right? A lens absolutely. of bias. And um, I never want, yeah. never want any of the students that I'm serving in any capacity, whether it's an administrator or a classroom, or, uh, to ever feel that way. I'm like, right. wow, man, to be dismissed in that way. Yeah. Ah. That's the idea of the whole student, right? Of yeah. them allowing to bring in their identity, to explore aspects of their identity, mm -hmm. um, and to, again, like we said, share their story. Yeah. Um, but they have to feel safe yeah. and respected um, to even be able to do that. They have to feel, I feel they got to feel as if they're valued, man. right? You know, right. and I always say that, the, you know, the whole student podcast, we're like, you got to feel seen, heard, and known mm. to truly feel like a whole student. Um, mm. And that's an interesting. Uh, measure, yeah, right. Because you know, if you're 
public school educator and you're punching the clock, yeah, that's not part of your day. You know, right. like you don't need to. I don't have time to see, hear, and know these kids. I'm just yeah. punching the clock. Right, getting through my my lesson plan. Right, right. So, uh, you know, there's not the kind of funding in, in public schools to to compensate the teachers that go above and beyond, and even in private school, yeah. right? And yeah. we're in that world now, and yeah. it's it's a it's a whole different dynamic. Yeah, it is. You know? It is. Yeah, and uh, the idea of academic rigor and excellence, right? And like, what are those standards based mm. upon? And how students show up um, to be considered, you know, an intellectual or brilliant, right? Because brilliance can manifest itself in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Maybe not our, our, you know, the ability. I think Stephen Biko is the one that said it from, you know, the uh, South African Freedom Movement. He said that we must distinguish the ability to articulate versus intelligence. Mm. They don't always mean the same thing. That's right. But by academia standards. We oftentimes do that, but what if a student is expressing themselves through through the arts? That's right, right, or through something else. That's right, you know, yeah, or or hasn't even learned the way in which they can express themselves at the time, mm. and we're not patient enough to allow for that expression to develop, mm. such that that student can thrive. Yes. Oh my goodness. Man. All right, you know, I think back to a lot of my classmates that unfortunately didn't have. I, I was privileged enough to have a mom that was, you know, pushing me, but didn't have that, right? Man. You know, at, right. you know. In the house. Yeah, no, exactly. constantly pushing. Yeah, who knows even, you know, what kind of trauma the kids are bringing into the classroom from their mm. home life experience, right? Oh, my right? God, yeah. yeah. How much they're holding, you know? Right. And you, and if you're empathetic as a as a, as an educator, mm. you can sort of feel that, right? You want to allow them to 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 empower themselves, you know, mm-hmm. to overcome those, those any kind of obstacles that, that stops their progress. Hmm. And how much do we re-traumatize them? Man. Right? And that's a whole nother beast. That is right? a whole nother beast, yeah. indeed. And that's the importance of being culturally competent, yeah. right? When we talk about, you know, these six skills of cultural competence, of, of self-awareness and perspective, yeah. of empathy, these are all very, very important, you know, because, again... If we don't do that, like you said, we oftentimes can re-traumatize these kids um, mm-hmm. in the classroom itself, which is supposed to be the place of their uh, intellectual exploration. Tune in to the next episode as we continue our experiment and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This concludes our Inclusion Lab Report. See you next episode.